Hi, I'm Benedict Evans. And I'm Tony Cowan Brown. And we thought today we would talk about content moderation because that's a nice, simple, easy, straightforward <laughs> subject with, with, with obvious answers. Straightforward uh, answers. Yeah, why are we even having this discussion? At least that's what my Twitter feed tells me. Um, I do have to say before you dig in, I'm actually really excited about having this conversation, mainly because I joined a Stanford course where they dug into misinformation filter bubbles. And it sounded like one of the speakers said, it's very simple. We'd understand all of this if only we could get our hands on all of the Facebook data. And I was like, oh. And then the other part of that was really easy. It's, you know, Facebook is just a tool. Um, So it's not content. And I was like, oh, okay. Got it. So I'm excited that we're having this conversation. Yeah, yeah, very, very, very simple. I mean, there's a um, there's a sort of an entertaining framing here, which is number one, people in Silicon Valley are all clueless bros who don't have passports and don't understand anything about the global complexity of the world. Plus, also, they should write three or four lines of code to moderate and control all of global human speech. And you kind of need to pick one or two of those. So, so I was going to sort of give like an opening framing just for sort of thinking yes. about this stuff. And I think there's like a generalized point I often make, which is that the internet used to be exciting and interesting, but not actually an important part of most people's lives. Because when the internet, when Netscape started in 1994, there were like 100 million PCs on Earth. And now something over 5 billion people have a smartphone. And so this stuff has become systemically important to everybody's lives. You know, there were, there were Nazis on Usenet 20 years ago, but no one worried about them swinging elections. Yeah. And now they do. And so this stuff matters. I think within that, there's like a kind of a core problem, which is that we connected everybody. And so we connected all the bad people. We connected all the ourselves and the Nazis. There was this old phrase that um, the internet is the densest village on earth. And so everyone can find their tribe. So you can be the only gay in the village, as the line goes, and you can find other gay people to talk to. You can find your tribe. Except that also applies to Nazis. And it applies to QAnon and it applies to every other random group, group that there is. And so we connected all the bad people and we connected all of our own worst instincts. And in parallel to that, we have like two centuries of working out how speech works. Like, what are you allowed to say and where? And that's a, like a really complex tapestry of social convention and peer pressure and professional standards and a very, very small piece of law sitting in the middle of that. But it's mostly like your editor won't let you run that and your peers will roll their eyes at you or your yeah. friends will stop inviting you to the bar. And then the internet comes along and blows all of that apart. And we don't really have a sense of what the different social spheres are or what the standards are or what we should do about this and how we should think about this. And we're in the middle of a sort of a moral panic of thinking, oh, my God, there's all this terrible stuff being said online and it's skewing elections and it's getting people to not have vaccinations and all sorts of stuff. And how do we think about what the complexities of there might be and whether there's a solution or what a solution might look like? I've got a question for you there, which is, do you think, so yes, we've connected everyone. Yes, we're trying to figure out content moderation and we're probably realizing that at scale, it's going to be extremely complicated. How much do you think the political aspects of this has made it that it's so much top of the agenda for absolutely everyone? Because it feels like there isn't a week or isn't a day that goes by without, whether it's journalists, academics, you name it, talking about content moderation and how this is the most important thing and this should be prioritised. But how much do you think that the role that politics has played in, in it and the role that politicians have played um, has made it such a priority? Well, so I think there's like clearly 
collectively we had this moment of realization about the importance of the internet in 2016 when both we had Trump got elected and Brexit happened in the UK and in both of those there's an argument that social media played a role which is actually debatable but that's not really the point of the conversation there's also much more than that so there's the role that um, social media played in Myanmar for example yeah and until about six months before that, there were lots of magazine pieces on how amazing and wonderful it was that everyone in Myanmar was suddenly getting online for the first time. and Everyone had a smartphone, yeah. having never had a computer or telephone before. It's great. Oh, shit, not like that. Um, and then you have like mobs breaking out. A couple of years ago, there was this whole thing in India of lynch mobs forming based on wild rumors that were spreading on WhatsApp, which was super interesting because WhatsApp is not doesn't have an algorithm and doesn't have advertising. And so like those kind of common reflexive, well, it's the algorithm and Facebook is promoting this and it's all because of advertising. Well, yeah, but that, that wasn't the point. And it comes back to my point that you kind of connect everybody. And so the sort of, the, the, you need to kind of phrase the point in a different way. We connect everyone. So we connect all the bad people. We also connect all of our own worst instincts. We connect all of our own sort of rush to judgment and our recency bias, all of our cognitive biases in all, all sorts of different ways. And the political stuff that's happened in the Anglosphere means that we talk about the political stuff but it's not that it only happened here. It's actually just a much more kind of basic systemic problem. And whatever political sphere or kind of sphere of speech you're in, you'll see people talking about the same stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's a sort of there's a sort of a basic point here, which is that we've spent kind of 200 or 250 years talking about free speech and working out what that means and if it even exists and what that should how that should function. And we've worked out this very rich sort of Burkean tapestry of overlapping conventions and rules and attitudes and sort of implicit assumptions. You know, what can you say in the bar? What can you say to your friends? What do you say in a newspaper? What will get into print in a book? What books will get stopped? What's on TV? And there's a sort of very thin layer of laws around that that, of course, are different in each country. And you know, libel yeah. law in the UK is not the same as libel law in America. But there's a whole kind of very complex, rich, implicit sort of set of conventions and rules about what you can say. And then the internet comes along and suddenly none of that works anymore because you can say something as a reply on a tweet that suddenly gets 10,000 people shouting at you. Or and you can have 50 friends on Facebook, but you can post something and millions of people could potentially see it. And so that sense of is this public or private and where did you say it and who can you say it goes away. And all the filters around what can get seen by millions of people go away because there isn't a newspaper editor anymore. Um, you know, Donald Trump, people get to talk a lot about advertising. Donald Trump has however many fo million followers he has. He can say something and everyone can yeah. see it. And, you know, you can f have a Facebook group that has 50,000 members and you can talk about how vaccines cause cancer and there's no editor or bookshop or TV station that can say we're not going to broadcast this. You can decide yeah. what you're going to broadcast. And so that gets you to this, oh, well, maybe then Facebook and Google and Instagram and Twitter should be controlling what we can say. Because you get to a you get to a point where it's, it's interesting that shift that happened of oh yay everything's online I, I feel like we saw that with um, how great is this we've sort of like democratized journalism and we've democratized access and voices and everyone can have a voice and it can be heard by everyone and then it's that question of well do we want to be hearing all of these voices and I cannot not think or talk about content moderation without thinking about the difference of just even free speech in the US versus Europe I always find that fascinating. Um, of also what is that breaking point of when do we consider free speech to actually no longer is there a breaking point basically or a line at which we say free speech is not okay when it's hateful harmful grotesque and you lose that constitutional protection um and it's the same with hate speech i just find it interesting that we 
we're having such a hard time. I mean, when I used to work at, at Nation Builder, we had also such a hard time of defining. And again, it's a little bit different there because it's not a platform that amplifies. Um, I'll come back, back to that in a second, but it's not a platform. You don't go there to have your voice amplified. We're selling software. But defining what we consider to be hate speech, I just think it's fascinating because we don't even have a global definition of what that actually is today. And if no one can agree what hate speech is, then how the hell are we supposed to try and solve content moderation, seeing as a lot of that is, is centered I, around hate It's speech. interesting. I mean, I almost think that the harder cases are easier. Like child porn is, mm, yeah. there's no disagreement about it. That's it. You know, even like between, you know, China and the USA, you know, that isn't, that's actually, there's not a, like a legal cooperation problem there. You kind of, as long as you don't think the Chinese are lying, then, you know, it's that, that's relatively straightforward. Nazism is, is relatively straightforward. I would have said anti-Semitism is easy to define, but obviously a large chunk of the UK Labour Party found it very difficult to define. Um, and so there's, but the sort of things where by and large, most reasonable people would agree that that is bad. The question is, are you allowed to say it? And the US has this very binary distinction between the free speech as things the government can and can't tell you to do. Um, and that's not the government. So there was this whole argument that free speech questions don't apply to Facebook because it's not the government. Well, it's a private corporation that controls how billions of people talk to each other. If they decide that billions of people can't say that, that is ipso facto a free speech question. It doesn't matter that they're not the government or not. Um, and so the US has this tendency to define free speech as what the government says. And if it's not the government, it's not free speech. And therefore, somehow it's not a problem, which is kind of like, I don't know, it's mm -hmm. like saying that there was only one. So, you know, suppose there's only one AT&T had a monopoly in the USA and AT&T said, well, we're just not going to allow in the And in the 60s, supposing AT&T said, well, we're just not going to allow any civil rights activists to have a telephone. And if you'd said, well, they're not the government, so that's not a problem, then I think people would have not have accepted that that was a valid argument. It's not a First Amendment yeah. issue because AT&T isn't the government. Uh, yeah, no, that doesn't work. And so it's, it's kind of, but it's kind of my point. Is that there's so many complicated interlocking layers and tissues of what are you allowed to say and not say. And then obviously AT&T didn't do that. Then obviously, or partly because it would have been physically impossible for them to do that. But I can imagine if you'd said to AT&T, you can't let any member of the Ku Klux Klan have a telephone. I'm not sure we'd all actually agree on how we'd react to that. There's a large yeah. chunk of people would say that's kind of like a supermarket saying, I'm not going to serve you. That's not that's their it. job. There's another chunk of people that said maybe they should do that. Now we apply this to the internet and we think, well, I mean, this is kind of to my, to my point. Like, there's a bunch of people in Menlo Park and Mountain View so Facebook and Google headquarters, respectively, who would say, yes, we have a responsibility here. Yes, this is a problem. Yes, there's classes of stuff that we don't, that, that are an issue. But I'm a 35-year-old product manager in Mountain View. Should I be deciding the basis of speech in Malaysia? Do I have, I don't have any legitimacy to do that. How do I do that? What's the process for doing that? Which is why you get things like sort of Facebook trying to set up a governance board with varying degrees of success. It's why you get yeah. people saying, well, there should be regulation. But you're in this sort of really weird new sphere in which there's like 15 people in the San Francisco Bay Area who could theoretically decide what a presidential candidate in Australia can say to the electorate, yeah. at least in like a kind of major chunk of how they would say it. And they're like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, do you want us to have that power? Do you and want that's us to it. Use it? And they probably don't. And And you talk to most of these tech companies. I think this is the... This is the thing that really gets me pissed off is when you listen to the academics or the journalists, it makes it sound as if, you know, 
the heads of these giant social media platforms want to be making those decisions. I think you'd ask any of them and they say, God, no, I absolutely don't want to be in charge of what we sense and what we don't. If we could take away that problem entirely, which obviously you can't, but they don't want to be seen as being the world's, you know, global censors. But there's something there around also of what you said, which is the, there's a fundamental in my opinion, difference that needs to be made between the social media platforms. And again, how do you define them? Are they a tool? Are they content creators? Are they, you know, editors, whatever you want to call them. And we can have a conversation about that because I know you've got thoughts about that. But also we've got to make a difference basically between the social media platforms where you go to have your voice being amplified and the software companies. And it was something that we, again, when I used to sell campaigning software, struggled with a lot. A, because it was political and it was, there's a massive difference in the US versus Europe. In the US, campaigning software is politicized. So you create software for one political party, not for both. Um, And so you either create software or campaigning software, organizing software for the Republicans or the Democrats, but you can't be seen doing it for both. Whereas in Europe, it's a little bit different. Obviously, we don't have a bipartisan model. So obviously, it's going to be different. Um, But not only that, we would have constant questions of which political parties would you allow to use your software? Um, And again, do you want a tech CEO in Silicon Valley? In this case, we were based in, CEO was based in Los Angeles, Mm. but do you want that CEO to be making decisions about who has access to organize, not even just have your voices heard, but who is is allowed to have a website? It's a, yeah, it's it's one of these sort of you know it's another of these framings. Is Facebook has too much power, and also they need to get rid of this stuff I don't like. Yeah, and do a lot of people do, do, react to don't. that by saying dislike is you know a silly phrase, and you're talking about Nazis here. Well, yes, in America, Nazis are allowed to be Nazis. Yeah, they are allowed to talk to each other. So how and we've got a clear sense of what is and isn't okay. You are it's okay for you to refuse to rent a hall to Nazis. It's not really okay for AT&T to refuse to let a Nazi have a telephone. It's, is, is it okay for a bank to refuse to let them to have a personal bank account? Corporate bank account, maybe. Personal bank account, you're going to deny them a mortgage? What exactly yeah. do we think about that? And whose decision is that? I mean, China has a very straightforward answer here. They have this social credit system, which in some ways gets very overhyped. But like, you know, in Mongolia right now, in a Mongolia, you decide you don't want your, if you refuse to let your children have lessons in Mandarin, you can't get a mortgage or a credit card or fly on a plane. Wow. Okay, that's the government making that decision. Do we want American Airlines to decide you're not allowed to buy a plane ticket? Like, are you sure you want American Airlines to make that decision? Because they really don't think they should be making that decision. I mean, there's a, um, there's a sort of, there's kind of so many different layers to this because one of them is like, whose decision is it and what should, and where should it happen? Another is like, what is the difference between, how do we articulate the difference between you saying something to a million people and you saying something in a private conversation? You know, we don't expect a phone company to scan all of our SMSs, even if they yeah. could, or listen to all of our phone calls. We accept that that's private, even if you're saying something evil, that's basically private. And where does where a does personal it... website sit, in your opinion? Like a political party hosting, website is hosted, obviously. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it gets super interesting. I mean, Cloudflare had this conversation, which is a CDN, had this yeah. conversation around, do we, do we host 4chan, do we host 8chan, whichever one it was. Yeah, it's complex, but the, ultimately, I think the decision there is they can go somewhere else. Yeah. Which is, in a sense, a get-out clause. You know, they don't need us. They can go somewhere else. If you're Facebook, then there is a sense of, well, actually, they kind of can't go somewhere else. 
So at that point, that changes the conversation a little bit. Now, you could argue that's that means that you should just break up Facebook. But that just relocates the problem because it's now it's five people collectively who are making that decision instead of one. But the decision is still there. Um, it's like, you know, if, if Instagram and WhatsApp were separate companies, would you say it's OK to kick them off Instagram because they can go onto WhatsApp? You, you, well, you haven't really solved the problem here at all, have you? You just made it somebody else's problem. Um, I mean, there's a there's a sort of analogy here that I, I, I wanted to go into which is, um, and I wrote something about this like 18 months ago, that in the early 2000s, end of the 90s, early 2000s, Microsoft had an explosion of malware because they had built this platform that was completely open and it was connected to the internet. And now all sorts of people start writing evil software to steal your bank details. And Microsoft had spent the previous 10 years getting shouted at for being evil, for being too too closed and for being too Mm. hard for people to write software. And suddenly we discover, no, Microsoft is evil for being too open and it's too easy to write software. And Microsoft has to have this sort of huge push to try and lock down Windows. And in parallel, you have this explosion of virus scanning software. And the joke was always that virus scanning software is actually a virus in that it slows down your computer and costs you $20 a month. It's basically like an extortion system. You know, it's protection money. You pay McAfee so that you don't pay the right pay <laughs> you don't pay hackers um and of course the ar- of yeah. yeah and of course the answer to malware was not virus scanners and locking down windows the answer was chrome and the cloud and ios it's you went to a fundamentally secure more secure software model because actually you couldn't stop you know, the windows architecture made it basically impossible to stop malware yeah. And instead, you had to move to a system where it was fundamentally impossible to write malware. And so on iOS, there is no malware because you install an app and it can't run in the background and look at what you're doing. You don't check to see if it's doing it. It can't do it. Um, and I was sort of, I wrote this piece saying, and this is basically the problem that Facebook are in now that, and, and Google are in, is a sort of a whack-a-mole problem. And that the creation of bad stuff is fundamentally, infinitely scalable because it's yeah. people. It's yeah. 4 billion people saying retweeting stuff that fits their prejudices um and the content moderation or the virus scanning is fundamentally unscalable because you're one at a timing it you're picking one thing after another and the solution is to create structures a structure where you can't do that and so you get this conversation now around social media which is that there was a whole way five years ago of apps that were private anonymous um, I think one secret and whisper and there were a couple of others and they all disappeared because it turned out it was just structurally, they were just structurally set up to be bullying platforms. And so there would be in the, you would be in the school yeah. and everyone would go in and they'd say mean stuff about one kid and there was nothing you could do about it because it was anonymous. That was the whole point. Yeah. And so you just couldn't do anything about it. And so they became, it became so overwhelming that those, those apps just disappeared. They just had to shut down because they couldn't make themselves not toxic. Um, the contrast might be, for example, Instagram decided just to just not allow reposting, which is a basic mechanic for abuse on Twitter. You can't do it on Instagram. So you remove certain mechanics where that can't happen. You could propose that you just remove sharing altogether on Facebook rather than trying to rather than trying to scan it. But that doesn't help if I like I paste something into my 500 person group or I post something on my newsfeed or I send something to, to 10 friends or 20 friends. Finally, we don't we don't expect Gmail to moderate harmful content, do we? Why don't we, I mean, just to go like, well, yeah. why, hang on, no. why are we not expecting, why don't we say that Gmail is a social network? Why aren't they moderating harmful content? Um, and so the other, I feel like I've been talking to you long, but the other, other analogy that I thought was super interesting is to compare the growth of the internet with the growth of cities in the 19th century and 18th century, when you have mobs and you have the removal of all the social constraint and the peer pressure 
on the influence of the village, the church and the family and the community. And in the city, there's no church, no family, no community. And you have, particularly in the 18th century, you have this explosion of mobs. In the 19th century, you have this explosion of sort of revolutionary mobs, revolutionary movements. And what do you do about that? How do you think about that? Your city's analogy is always fascinating because I, I can't help but think about, God, we're doomed. Like, there's no way out of this apart from if you take it all down and start from scratch. Um, but you're but your Google piece was fascinating. I found myself in a room in Washington, D.C. with people from the RNC, the DNC, Google, Facebook, I think, um, and other social um, platforms, but also other campaigning platforms. And there was a big debate about how Google was politically biased um, towards one political party, except that both the RNC and the DNC couldn't decide which one. So the RNC was saying, no, no, they're biased against us. And the DNC was saying, no, no, they're biased against us. And so it was fascinating thinking about, wait, are you saying that we have platforms like Google, Facebook? And we've seen this argument a lot that face, you know, Twitter is biased against the Republicans and Facebook is biased against, you name it. And so there's just this thing of reminding, no, in my opinion, these platforms are not biased against one political party or another. They're here to make money. Why do we seem to forget that? So they're obviously going to build the best platform that actually enables more money to be made. So to your mm. point about, well, what if we stopped sharing on Facebook? My mind went to, would that help with their business model? Would that hinder that? And why are we mm. not doing that? Well, so you talk, my, all my friends at Facebook would basically say, we wish we didn't have news at all. We don't make any money from it. We actually don't make any money from news, although the amount of money is trivial. It's a huge amount of, 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 of pain and aggravation and... You know, whether you believe the social harm is real or not, there's a huge amount of people shouting at us. The PR damage is yes. enormous. We should, we would love really, you know, we should just block all news domains entirely. Like all news content. <laughs> and, and like, that's not what Zuck says, but like from a financial <laughs> point of view, they are not making money out of this. They're just really like, oh, please make it go away and get everybody back to sharing pictures of puppies. They would much rather just be the puppy sharing of picture network. It's so much easier. But also, it's it's interesting you say that because it was the same for me when I was building out Nation Builder um, in, in Europe. We didn't make any money from campaigns. Presidential campaigns come and go. So you have a great amount of revenue. You've got great RR for a couple of, you know, um, so MRR, sorry, not AR. Um, good monthly revenue for, you know, six to 12, maybe 18 months. And then all of that revenue, you know, disappears all at once. Um, so, to, and and it's extremely contentious of, well, how many presidential candidates are you willing to sell your, your campaigning software to? Where do you draw the line? Who do you allow? Um, so you're right, there's no money being made in that. Um, another question for you. I know we talk a lot about Facebook because obviously, um, to your point, it's got somewhat of a monopoly. So where else do you go? But I've been thinking a lot about other platforms, whether that's Zoom, Spotify, Clubhouse, Substack, how, and I'm getting a sense that they are not actually learning or paying attention to this. I feel like someone like Substack or Zoom isn't thinking that they're going to have to moderate and not just content, but moderate who they allow to use their software. Well, there's a great, uh, there's a comment from um, Alex Demos, who was a CISO, was CISO at um, Facebook, that any yeah. internet platform that allows people to share files of any kind has a child porn problem. Every single one. Yeah, fair Because enough. it does. Because yeah. those people exist and they want to share those pictures and they'll look for a platform that lets you look for it. And the only question difference is which platforms try and stop it, which platforms look for it, which platforms provide information about how successful they are in stopping it. So there is child porn on Apple Photos. There is child porn on Google Photos. There is child porn on Box. There is child porn on Dropbox. There is child porn on every social platform of every kind. And I remember looking recently at a... Um, 
somebody had made a kind of collaboration platform that was very popular amongst a bunch of schools, you know, and it was basically just him. He had like several hundred schools using it. And they were all saying we really want, and it was, and it, the whole part of the point was like it was easy to log in and you didn't have to verify identity. And, I, and then people yeah. start asking, well, we really want to be able to share pictures. And he starts writing it. And then after about 10 seconds goes, no, no, <laughs> because of course, no, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, you sort of, you have to sort of think every platform you build has people on it. And guess what? That beavers and butthead are now in their 40s and they're still beavers and butthead and they're still there. I mean, this was the problem Zoom had, which was they built an enterprise piece of enterprise software and suddenly it blows up amongst consumers. And guess what? Beavers and butthead turn up. Just beavers and butthead show up, yes, but also people who've never used the software are using it for the first time without thinking about it mm. and are not looking at all the parameters that exist and all of the settings that exist to actually make this a secure space. So there's a, there's a human element there as yeah, well. Yeah, but it's also those settings weren't really front and centre because they, they hadn't really true. been a problem because you're working inside a big company, so you didn't like dial into a, the all hands and show your member. And have a password and close um, it out and yeah. Yeah, you didn't need to do that. I mean, back to the sort of city analogy. I mean, it's, it's you know, there is a whole, you know, moral thing about cities as the centre of all evil in the 18th, particularly the 18th century and the 19th century. In the 18th century, it's a mob. And then the 19th century, it's revolutions. And it's also, you know, the, um, what's his name? Hogarth, the horse progress, harlot's progress, which is, you know, social and moral corruption. People go there and they get lured into debauchery and gambling and end up dead and, and so on. Um and part of that is you have labor laws and, you know, no sending children up the chimney. And part of it is if you build a sewage system. Part of it is um, you build lots of churches, which what Britain did in the 19th century, you build lots of churches in, in the big cities. Part of it is the Ausman thing of you reconstruct Paris in the 1850s and 60s. Um, and you create these big boulevards and you open up all the working class areas and you create new bridges and you create new street layouts. And there's a whole argument that a lot of this is about making it easy to move soldiers around the city yeah. and say so that you can't have barricades in the same way. Now, there's also an argument that this isn't true and it, that was all sort of incidental and it was just about making it a better city. Um, but, you know, the practical, you know, it doesn't matter if it's true. There's a sort of there's a metaphorical point in there as well. Um, there's also, of course, a point about what happened in St. Petersburg in 1917, which is that Russia had basically moved a huge chunk of population population from being a from being peasants in scattered all over the country to being highly concentrated in you know in in slums around around the capital city um and so the answers to those there is a police station there is hiring more police there is close the universities whenever the students start talking about marx but there's also like you move to a world in which we mitigate this but we accept that we're not in a village anymore um, yeah. And the comparison I was thinking about was sort of, I'm old enough to remember the beginning of the consumer internet in like the early 90s. And there's this horrible moment where people realize that there's porn on the internet, yeah. which we've mentioned a couple of times. And there was this whole yeah. narrative of like, well, the tech companies are just going to have to solve it. They'll just have to get rid of the porn. They'll just get, get rid Move of it. it. Which my old boss, Mark Andreessen, liked to refer to as a sort of the nerd harder argument, which is go invent new maths. Yeah. And the answer, of course, as we know, is you can't remove the porn from the internet. You can look for child porn, yes, but you can't just not have porn on the internet. That's not on your list of options. It's kind of, which is kind of like saying, well, we're going to have a city that doesn't have any crime. Well, yes, that's called Pyongyang. But short of that, you can't. Yeah. 
what you do is you think about moderation and you think about trade-offs and you think about what you can do about it. And this is sort of my my thinking, my, my sort of half-formed thesis as I think about content moderation on Google and Facebook and YouTube and so on, which is, you know, we have a police force, but we accept that the police don't catch all the crimes, all the criminals. Yeah. And, we still, and we lock our doors and we don't walk down the street laden with jewellery at two o'clock in the morning. And, you know, we, 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 we live in a world in which this is an aspect of life. And I sometimes wonder if that's a useful powered model. I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't say this is, but I think it's a, a question. Is that how we should think about quote unquote harmful content on the internet, which is that you have rules and you have enforcement and you look for stuff, but you accept that there's just going to be people doing this. I think there's two sides to that. I think we can get to that argument, or I hope we get to that argument, because I kind of agree with it, but only if we actually fundamentally understand what's going on, if we understand the scale at which this is all happening. And again, I think back to, you know, whether it's academics, whether it's journalists, just saying to your point, well, we just need to find a solution to it. But do we realise that there are, you know, 300 hours or a minute being uploaded on YouTube and there are 95 million photos a day being uploaded on Instagram and God knows how many millions of tweets a day? It's just not possible. And so we know that without any facilitation, which sounds like take away all the, 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 the police force, no facilitation whatsoever, no moderation, at least at the Wild West. What does accountability and ownership look like as well? Like this is your space. And so I think about... I want my neighborhood to be safe. I want to be able to walk down the street as, specifically as a woman and know that I, you know, there are mm. safeguards in place to keep me safe. So there's that level of accountability and ownership. So what do I need to do? Um, but I think that there needs to be more understanding um, to be able to get to that space. And I feel like understanding the way cities work is a little bit more easier than understanding the way the internet works. Well, I think this is, I mean, this is, goes back to the thing I said at the beginning that how quickly this has happened. That's it. Um, I mean, I wrote a piece about technology regulation and I can kind of compare this to regulating cars, which is yeah. we do regulate cars, but there's like 10 different things within that. We regulate emissions and yeah. safety and that's on the car companies. We also have speed limits. That's not on the car companies. And we have parking restrictions. That's also not on the car companies. And you can't go to General Motors. You can go to General Motors and say you're bullying your suppliers. We're fining you. You can go to them and say the car isn't safe. We're fining you. Maybe sending somebody to prison. You can't go to General Motors and say we have to build more cycle lanes. They might agree. You could even tax them to build the cycle lanes, but you can't tell General Motors to build cycle lanes. And so there's a sort of sense of like there's 18 or 20 different questions in here and you have to kind of work out what those questions would be. Um, but I think the other thing that I sort of, the, the, the point that I was trying to get at in that point about moderation is like it took us 75 years to get make seatbelts compulsory. We had quite a long time. And it took quite a long time, whereas the internet has and happened. And how angry people were but, but, when we told them to mm, wear seatbelts. Exactly, but the internet has happened so much more quickly that we have to think about solving this much more quickly. And we also have to do it in a, at a point in a period in which we don't necessarily really understand it in the same way that we would understand, you know, when we regulate a supermarket, we kind of yeah. understand what a supermarket is. When we understand what cars are and we understand what it means to say we're going to have collision requirements or we're going to have a seatbelt requirement. Um, I mean, I remember this line that, that when the Mini, which was like this iconic British car of the 60s, was created and someone asked in the seat, not only were there no seatbelts, obviously, but the seats didn't even latch down. They were just on hinge, they hinged forward. Um, yeah. There was not even a lock on them to hold them in place. And somebody said to of the course. designer, Alex Zagonis, like, are you going to make the car safer? And he said, well, I'm going to make my, you know, and, and exactly what he said. But it was something like, you know, my car has such good handling, it'll never get into an accident. <laughs> you know, the steering's going to be better. That's the solution. That's and that was kind of how the tech industry talked about this in like 2015. 
Like, we're not going to solve this. Now, nobody in the tech industry says that. Everyone says we've got to solve this. Nobody says, well, well, what would that mean? But then, again, we're still sort of at the stage of going to General Motors and saying, well, you have to fix parking. It's like, well, yeah, we agree parking is a problem, but like we make cars. So we don't, like, control the streets of your city. And it's also such a, there's, a, there's the, the cultural context, that I think, that we touched upon at the beginning of these are, you know, American companies built by men, mostly American men. And what does it look like when it's Europeans or it's Chinese people or Indian people using the software? And I go back to that. What was it? I think it was in 2017 or 2018 when Twitter, was it Twitter? Both Twitter, I think, and Facebook had huge fines um, for failing to regulate hate speech um, to the satisfaction of German authorities. I don't know where that landed, but you would never see this kind of story in America where hate speech is somewhat protected. And so it was interesting that for Americans, this concept of government forcing companies to censor specific posts because they mm. didn't you know, agree with it sort of resembled this idea of you know, internet censorship, which we don't want any of. Um, and again, that was what was three years ago, and I don't know how that panned out, but there's something there, just like the cultural differences and understanding. Yeah, I'm just understanding, like that's, I mean, I've heard these conversations with sort of conservative politicians in the UK along the lines of the abuse that female politicians get on Twitter is unacceptable and they have to solve it. And I don't hear anyone on the left in the US saying, you know, Twitter has to solve that. Like, yes, trolling and yes, block lists and et cetera, et cetera. But there's no like sense in the US that, you know, if you say something horrible to a woman on Twitter, you might get arrested. Yeah. And in the UK, like you, I'm not, I'm not sure everyone in the UK thinks that's a good idea, but at least it's something that's on the list, potentially. Yeah. Um, and there's an interesting point actually tied to that. I, I went to, I think it was a webinar, an online event, and it was fascinating that they were talking about misinformation and hurtful comment, content online towards specifically towards women and they were saying that we need to figure out how we diversify the people who are trying to find the problems because most men the way they have misinformation or get attacked online is actually written content Mm. with women it's generally pornographic in nature it's memes it's visual but a lot of the the censorship and a lot of the content moderation tools that are being put in place are focused on text Mm and written content, mm. not visual content. And I just thought that was fascinating of, we're actually missing a beat here trying to help the female politicians online who are getting a lot of hate because the, the hate that they're getting is visual in, in nature or audio in nature. Mm. And we're nowhere near close to trying to figure out that kind I of thing. I keep coming back to my sort of sense of, are we playing whack-a-mole here? And is the answer sort of yeah. structural, something structurally different? The problem, as I said, with the structurally different answer is it's hard to imagine something more structurally different than WhatsApp. And yet WhatsApp just has different problems. It's like, you know, what's the joke? You know, if you create a better idiot, if you create, make something idiot proof, God creates a better idiot. You know, if you make something troll proof, God just creates a different kind of troll. If you make something idiot, if you make a social network idiot proof, God will just create different kind of idiots, different kind of stupidity. You know, and the core of it is, I mean, just sort of thinking of a sort of different model. I wrote a piece about a few years ago, saying that you should think of any big internet platform as basically a mechanical Turk. So PageRank is a mechanical Turk. Because PageRank, the whole point of PageRank is instead of trying to work out what that web page is, probably should have said this earlier, instead of trying to work out what that web page is, we look at all what all the humans have done. And so we will use the human yeah. activity. People will tell us. So PageRank is a mechanical Turk. The same as Instagram, same as YouTube by extension. YouTube doesn't know what that video is. It knows who watched it, what else they watched, what they wrote, what they liked, what they didn't. It's observing people. 
And so you either build, you know, YouTube um, page rank captures existing human behavior. YouTube and Facebook obviously stimulate new human behavior. But what you're always doing in effect is that you've built this vast computing system in which the people are the computers. You've got this vast distributed computing system in which you have 4 billion CPUs, which is all of us. And therefore the bugs and the exploits are the exploits in us. There are cognitive biases. You're not looking for SQL injection and buffer overflows and so on. You're looking for, you're looking for you know, recency bias yeah. and confirmation bias. And so therefore, you see, this kind of back to my point that what, the fundamental problem here is that you've created a vast supercomputer of people. And we're now seeing the expression in, expressed in all sorts of different ways, the bugs in people, which is that sometimes we're ourselves and sometimes we don't read the story. And sometimes we comment without thinking. And sometimes you think you are being polite, but actually somebody else thinks you're being an arsehole. Um, I mean, there's a sort of, we were talking about this before that like, there's a sort of thing that blew up on UK political Twitter today, which is Carol Cadwallader, who was a journalist behind the Cambridge Analytical story, posted a thing that's had tens of thousands of retweets saying Boris Johnson's popularity went up massively after he was diagnosed with COVID-19. It's totally untrue. And there's a bunch of other political journalists mm-hmm. saying, look, Caroline, Carol, here's the polls. That's just not true. She hasn't deleted it. She thinks it's true. And that's how many different, how many different cognitive biases are you seeing her exhibiting there? Which is she's posted it because she wants to believe it's true. It hasn't occurred to her to question it. And then tens of thousands of people are retweeting it because, of course, it doesn't occur to them to question it. So back to the question that runs all the way through this conversation, should Twitter delete yeah. that? Are you sure? I think Carol should delete it. How comfortable are you? Do you yeah. think Twitter should delete Wait, that? say that again. You th- I think she should delete it. But yeah. should Twitter delete it? It's misinformation. It's not true. Should Twitter delete it? Now, you can probably have an opinion on that. It's a human problem. No, I'm sure people listening to this will have an opinion on that. But like, there's more than one opinion on that. That's not a simple answer. And it's to that point, we can't expect tech companies to fix human problems. Yeah, is Jack Dorsey supposed to answer that? And I just can't, I can't help but go back to the thing that I said again and again that I would always say when I worked in, in campaigning software is how comfortable are you with a tech CEO making the decision of who has access to the tools that you need to run for office, for example, mm. in that scenario. Um, how comfortable are we with Jack Dorsey deciding that tweet he is going to take it in his hands, even though he believes and mm. it's been proven that it's factually inaccurate, that he is going to take that down? How comfortable are we to live I in I think that this world? would be a really interesting kind of intellectual exercise. You know, go back, imagine you're in the 60s and there's a, a civil rights movement in America, civil rights movement, Ku Klux yeah. Klan. Make a list of the top 50 consumer businesses, banks, supermarkets, yeah. phone companies, bus companies, which of those should refuse to do business with X or Y? I love that. Are you sure? Are you sure that they wouldn't be refusing to do business with the civil rights movement? You presume it's the, they'd be on the side of civil rights. Maybe they wouldn't be. I mean, I saw, some, I, I saw somebody the other day saying, I think they worked at Teespring, which is a t-shirt company. Um, and they had people in their factory in Kansas saying, how come we're making a Black Lives Matters t-shirt? That's racist. Wow. Are we, and here's, now here's a Hillary Clinton t-shirt. This is sexist. We're not going to make that. But you are going to make a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. Okay. They were a t-shirt company. Now, yes, we're not going to make something with a swastika on it. But, and that's... You know, I mean, I, you know, and, and in that situation, yeah, you know, there's just one, they're just one t-shirt company. So of course they can review, they're free to refuse to do whatever yeah. they want. But this sort of sense of the private company making the decision, no one at that, who makes that decision and what is the decision and what, I mean, I, you know, the sort of framing that I used in the presentation I did at the beginning of the year, what does bad mean and what does takedown mean? 
So there's a very wide spectrum of what is bad. And there's a very, I mean, there's the extreme everyone agrees. Yes, everyone agrees Nazis are bad. Yes, everyone agrees child porn is bad. Okay, shut up. That's not the question. The question is, am I allowed to say this thing that many people would disagree about? And then the other spectrum is, what's the difference between an SMS and the front page of YouTube? Again, we know an SMS is private. We know the YouTube, the cover of YouTube is not private. But there's, what's the line in the middle of that? Are you sure? How would you define that? And who? And I thought your your Carol piece was really interesting because it is also whose voices are more important. Whose voices do we trust? Important is the wrong word, mm. but whose voices do we trust out there? I am more inclined, obviously, to trust something that's from a reputable source, which mm. I would have generally put her in that bucket. Um, but also, what does that mean now as citizens? Of well, what's my role and responsibility when I'm taking in all of this new content? Mm. Um, how much? responsibility and i even taught what how to figure out what is misinformation how do i check the source online i mean it used to be that you just you know looked at your encyclopedia and if it was in your encyclopedia great um then you can trust it that it's factually accurate that those encyclopedia days are long gone um so i my mind always goes to that as well are we educated enough to understand how we make sense of all the content that's available online because to your point the fact that she was wrong in that tweet that's not going to be shared nearly enough um or nearly as much. Yeah, I mean, this is the entire content moderation problem. It's it's easy to do so, the rush. It's easy to talk about the Russians, and that's kind of displacement because that's not the real problem. It's Donald Trump. I mean, there's a study today that said Donald Trump is like the, the source of thirty percent or whatever the number was. Donald Trump is like the single biggest vector for misinformation about COVID. And I, people say, well, you Twitter should take it down. He's the president of the United States. Yeah. Are you sure about that? That's not actually an easy straight statement. So we should wrap up. We've been talking for too long. We should. Um, what's the, is there an answer? Do we want? Do we have a, a final say on that? I guess my thing is what happens online is a reflection of society, um, except it's happening at scale. And so we need to use the same kind of levers and tools that we put in place at a society, real life level. Online. I mean, I think my thinking is, I mean, I've always been a fan of Burke, um, the British conservative philosopher from the 18th century. Um, and the, the phrase, the basic thinking here is like, we've spent 250 years trying to work out free speech. We've probably spent 3,000 or 4,000 years trying to work out morality. And I don't think anyone in philosophy would say, yeah, yeah we've worked that one out now. <laughs> <laughs> Done. And then we're trying, you're supposed to sort of work out how we apply that to this new sphere that cuts across, cuts across all of humanity and all models of possible models of communication. I don't know that there's an answer to that. And if there is, it's one that we will slowly evolve in the same way that we evolved our answers to how does speech work, who gets to talk on television, who gets to vote. Um, And that's probably the challenge is that there isn't, uh, the answer is there isn't an answer, there's a process. Oh, I like that. There we are, that's a good tweet. That feels like the perfect, that's a good, (laughs) go off and tweet it now. (laughs) That's a great place to end.